I think it's a really great way for us to kick off things uh, tonight. Uh, as you can kind of glean from that, that video, Americans, right, we are some of the most overworked people on the planet. Quoting political scientist Samuel Huntington, Americans work longer hours, we have shorter vacations, and we retire later than people in comparably rich societies. Right? But why? It's not simply out of necessity. Right? As you can see from this video, from the article that sort of attends it, Derek Thompson writes that for the college-educated elite, he's talking about you all, me, us in this room, for the college-educated elite, work is morphed into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence, and community. He calls this new form of religion workism. It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but it's also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Thompson writes, the best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason devout Christians attend church on Sundays. They're going to worship. And you could argue worship who or worship what. But as Thompson points out, our desks were never meant to be our altars. I think we can all give an amen to that. In that much-quoted commencement speech, David Foster Wallace says, when we worship anything but God, we get eaten alive. You worship work and productivity, and you're never going to feel like you've done enough. You're never going to feel like you are enough. The hurry and the hustle is not making you any better, but it's making you bitter. You tell me so. You tell me that you're feeling burned out and stressed out and tired. And it's not just you. Your peers are feeling this way, too. Because out of this workaholic culture is growing this very bitter fruit of burnout. We see it. We taste it. But there is a better way of being human. And this is why Jesus draws near to you. It's why he puts his word inside of you. He says, stay connected to me. Let my life flow into you. Become healthy and whole again. Jesus says, let all that I am and all that I've done, my life, my death, my resurrection, let it get inside of you and produce within you good fruit, fruit for the sake of the world, that others might taste and see that I am good. We're part four in our series, Roots and Relationships, that this relationship series that began with a story of a sower who goes out into a field and he's sowing good seed because ultimately what he wants is good fruit. And we have seen what it is necessary to produce that good fruit. We need rest. We need roots. We need to be in relationship with God's people. We need to be a part of his church. And when these things are in place, good fruit naturally follows. Do you all know what a demonstration plot is? It's a farming term I just learned today. Maddie, maybe you've heard of this before. I don't know. Demonstration plot? It's okay if you don't. Okay. Back in the day when a farmer discovered a new and better way of doing things, maybe a a new tool or a new technique or a new kind of fertilizer, the farmer would use that tool, that technique, that fertilizer, and a demonstration plot of land for other farmers to see what was going to happen. Farmers from all over the region would then get new wisdom and and new know-how from demonstration plots like this that were typically surrounded by other farms. This is what God wants us as people to be. He wants us to be a demonstration plot for the ways that humans can and should live in the world. Right? A better way of being human. 
In a world that is being worked to death, someone who is calm and hopeful and peaceful and not neurotic, like you will stand out almost like a unicorn. And that's by design. God wants you and wants us to be a demonstration plot, right, of his gospel, of his good news, like of the good life. He wants us to sort of be bursting full of fruit that other people who could look and taste and see of it and be like, what's going on here? A demonstration plot. In the video article we kick things off with, Derek Thompson says there is a spirituality underlying our workaholism. That spirituality is that there is no God and there's no meaning to the universe except for the ones that we give it. It follows that you and I then are self-determined beings. I am who I say I am. You are who you say you are. And yours and my self-identities, they need to be expressed somehow. And one of the chief ways that we do that is through our work. You can see the logic. If I am what I make of myself, work very quickly becomes the thing that we use to justify our existence, to express ourselves and to express our worth. If there is no God, if there's no meaning except the meaning I give it, I'm a self-determined being. I need to express myself, and I do that primarily through my work. Right? You all follow? It reminds me of the song Surface Pressure from the latest Disney movie, Encanto. Listen to the lyrics. I move mountains, I move churches, and I glow because I know what my worth is. I don't ask how hard the work is. Got a rough, indestructible surface. Diamonds and platinum, I find them, I flatten them. I take what I'm handed, I break what's demanded. But under the surface, I feel berserk as a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. A flaw or a crack, the straw on the stack that breaks the camel's back. What breaks the camel's back is pressure. Now the song concludes on this note. Who am I if I don't have what it takes? And I think that's a question a lot of you are asking. It's a question that a lot of your peers are asking. Who am I if I don't have what it takes? And I think the only solution that you can come up with, a lot of the solution that a lot of your friends are coming up with is, I got to work really hard. I got I got to get really busy. No cracks, no breaks, no mistakes, no pressure. In another excellent article, this one called The Busy Trap, author Tim Kreider writes, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. I'm busy. Or I'm so busy. Or I'm crazy busy. (laughs) Busyness, Kreider writes, it serves as a kind of existential reassurance a hedge against emptiness. Because obviously my life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if I'm so busy and completely booked and in demand every hour of the day. Or so we try to tell ourselves, right? So we try to convince ourselves. Simply put, you and I are busy because we want to convince the world and to even convince ourselves that we matter. It's why we're on that rat race. It's why we're just going and going and going. Because I'm busy. I matter.
We kicked off part four of our series last week with a discussion around our identity. And that was very intentional. Contrary to the expressive individualism of our culture, you are not a self-made man or woman. You are made in the image of God. You do not create yourself. You are created. And you are created to reflect the goodness and the grace of God to the rest of the world. You are made in his image. And this is not just true of you. It is true of everyone around you. The implication being that every human being has intrinsic dignity and worth. Now, even though we fail to image God as we ought, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son, right? that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. And this isn't just a life that goes on forever. It's a quality of life that we were meant to have from the beginning and forever. Life to the fullest. The good life. And when we take Jesus at his word and we take him into our hearts, our sense of self and our sense of self-worth, it deepens. Because we see not only are we made in God's image, but what Jesus proves is that we are loved by God and we are chosen by him. That we are royal sons and daughters of the king. Thanks to Jesus, we are declared all right. We are righteous. And this is not an identity or a verdict that we earn. It is one that is won for us. It is given to us. Jesus living a perfect life on our behalf and taking the punishment our sins deserve so we can have this standing. Again, a standing that that we didn't work for or achieve or win, but that he won for us. He does this so that you and I, we can have an unshakable identity and by faith. Once you realize that this is who you are in Christ, it does transform your relationships, including the ways that you relate to your work and to your rest. If you have this identity, are you going to work hard? Well, sure you will. God works and God works hard and we who bear his image will work hard too. But we're not going to work anxiously. We don't have to work to earn anything. That's a huge difference. See, in the Genesis story, we see God create spaces and he fills them. He brings light to darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets his hands in the dirt as he were. He plants a garden. He puts us there in the middle of it. We who are made in his image, we're meant to do likewise, to bring light to darkness, to bring order out of chaos, to get our hands in the dirt. We are meant to work and we're meant to do it with excellence cultivating what is good and beautiful and true. But because we are not defined by our work, we can do our work non-anxiously. We can do our work simply as a means of worshiping God and not as a way of determining our worth-ship. But God doesn't just work. God rests from his work, too. He sits back, as it were, and enjoys the goodness of what he's made. And since we're made in his image, we are supposed to do that as well. In the video we watched, we heard Derek Thompson say, I don't think anyone has ever been able to provide a clear and final answer to the question, how do I balance my life between love and work and family and friends? 
it's true that his answers are not very compelling. The U.S. Congress will not fix this problem. They can't do much, and they are certainly not going to fix this. Therapy will not solve this problem. Godless religions like Buddhism that deny the existence of the self and existentialist philosophies that say we need to define ourselves, they're not going to be much help either. Elle Mills is closer to the truth when she says that we need better boundaries, but we don't need to figure those boundaries out on our own. This is something that God has already done. He's already delineated boundaries, a boundaries that he's already established, and we behold them on page one of the Bible. You don't have to like flip through like some obscure passages to find it. Just open up to the very first page. We behold that boundary on page one in the story of creation, and we hear that boundary repeated throughout the scriptures at many times and places, but most notably in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are recorded in two places in the Old Testament, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Morgan read them both for us out loud tonight. In both instances, that boundary is clearly defined. You can see it in the handout uh, on, the, on your seat. The boundary is this. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That's the boundary. Work six days. Take the seventh off. Rest is mandated by God. And in the same list as don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't be a workaholic. The wording in Exodus and Deuteronomy is nearly verbatim. They start the same, but they end on very different notes. I don't know if you notice this. In Exodus, the reason for our rest is that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh day. The reason we should rest is rooted in the story of our creation. We rest because God rests and we're made in his image. In Deuteronomy, however... The reason for our rest is that you were once slaves in Egypt, but you're not slaves anymore. This time, the Sabbath command to rest is rooted in the story of our salvation. At once it was creation, now it is salvation. Both are used as justifications. See, slaves work seven days a week, and you're not a slave anymore. You're a child of God. Workism is dehumanizing and it is destructive to you and to others around you. So don't do it. Don't revive what God has removed. Don't gather and piece back together what God has smashed and scattered. Don't place yourself in a yoke that God broke and tossed off with his own hands. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And because of God's creation and because of his salvation, work six days and then rest on a seventh. This is one of the Ten Commandments I said, right? It's on that same list as don't murder, don't have other gods, right? It's a big deal. Sabbath is a command. It's not a suggestion. We really ought to do this. Jesus wants you to take this seriously. And not because he's like... I don't know, just uh, loves rules. He, he has these rules because he loves you. He loves me. He loves us. 
Jesus wants to work this rhythm, these boundaries into your life because he loves you and he loves the people around you. And Sabbath is an expression of that love. You're not a slave anymore. Don't live like one. That said, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. How do we actually put this into practice? Well, I hate to do this, but like that is a really big question, and I don't. It takes more than thirty minutes to actually answer that in all of its fullness. So, I'm going to recommend three books to you. Okay, and they're these. I would say maybe probably in order that I would read them: Garden City by John Mark Comer, Rest of God by Mark Buchanan, and Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda. These are some of the best books that I've ever read on this topic. I highly commend them to you. They're fantastic. But I will answer this question in part because I don't want to leave you hanging, okay? Here are a several, there are actually seven, um, suggestions or sort of thoughts on what it looks like to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Number one. Six days of work is a sufficient work week. Everything that you need to accomplish in a week can be accomplished in six days. One of the reasons why you don't take a day off is not because you're so busy. It's because you're so distracted. Instead of focusing on your work, you've got your cell phone buzzing with text. You've got friends on another browser, you know, just sort of running as you're typing. Like, you've got a lot of things going on. So what could be accomplished in an hour is actually taking you three. And what could be accomplished in four or five days is actually being spread out across seven. The reason why you're not resting is because you're not working really well. And look, I'm not mad at you. I'm not trying to shame you. I did it too. But let's be real. You could, you could actually take a full 24-hour day off if you just worked better, if you just had better boundaries around your work. Number two, the golden rule of Sabbath is to cease from what, what is necessary, what is like what you're going to be doing in those six days, and to embrace that which gives life. Cease from what is necessary, embrace that which gives life. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which essentially means to stop. To cease. That's what the word means. To quote John Mark Comer, work is a good thing, but it's not the thing. There's more to life than production. There's pleasure. And Sabbath is a way to break our addiction to accomplishment. One day a week, we cease all work. Not just the work we get paid for. We rest even from the thought of labor. Number three, not only do we cease from our work, we celebrate what we already have, what we have in Jesus. Sabbath is a day to celebrate life in God's very good world. So feast with your friends. Go for a walk in the woods. Climb a mountain. Plant a tree. Paint a picture. Ride a bike. Snuggle up with a book, not one that you have to read for class. Do a puzzle. Take a nap. You have six days to do what needs to be done. Use this one, your Sabbath day, to rest 
and recreate and rejoice and relax. Use this day to remember who you are. You are God's image bearer. You are his beloved. You are his chosen one. Worship. Celebrate the fact that you don't have to earn your identity, but that it is freely given to you, all thanks to Jesus. This is the day to do that. Number four, Sabbath rest like sleeping is an act of trust and faith and vulnerability. By taking a day off, we are practicing and proving that God is good and that he's in control. We don't have to have our hands in everything. We can take a day off. By taking a day off, we're also saying no to that voice inside of us that's saying my worth is determined by my productivity. And that is a loud voice. It screams loud. You need to silence it, and you can silence it with Sabbath. Sabbath is an act of faith because when we practice it, it's not only reflecting our trust in God, but also sort of, sort of uh, reinforcing it. Number five, Sabbath takes practice. You're not going to crush Sabbath right out of the park, right? It's not like, okay, I heard this talk on Wednesday. Now I'm just going to be excellent at this. You have to put this, it, it takes practice. You're going to try to do this and you will succeed sometimes and you will fail at others. But I want to encourage you to keep going. Again, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. This is a, an essential part of the good life. And I think it is fruit that is desperately needed to be tasted and seen in our culture. Last night, I got dinner with Sam. And uh, when we were eating dinner, we were talking at the end uh, about trapeze artists. And we were talking about how in order to do the trapeze, you, you need a net underneath you. If there's no net underneath you, like people are going to be swinging on this bar and they're never going to let go. It's too risky. But as soon as you put a net down, it liberates them to actually be bold and to let go and to actually do flips in the air. The net makes that trapeze possible. And in so many ways, God has given us a net in Jesus so that we can like let go of the bar and actually be bold in life and, and try and, and, and actually do flips, do amazing things. You're going to hit, you're going to fall, you're going to miss a grip, you're going to, you will fall, but that net is there to catch you. And it's there to catch you, not so you stay on the net, it's meant so that you can climb back up the ladder and try again. And as you practice again and again and again, you hit that net less and less and less, and your life becomes something that is glorious and beautiful and demands applause. And there will be applause for you in heaven. There will be applause for you here on earth. Practice. God has given you a net for this very reason. Take risks. Take a day off. Number six. The Sabbath command offers us a unique opportunity for witness in the 21st century, particularly in a world that is exhausted and tired and is searching for rest and peace. As the church enters into Sabbath, it is embodying the rest of God, not just for itself, but for the world. The Jews believe that if you wanted to know who God, if you wanted to know who knew God, you could tell by looking at their schedules. You want to know who knows God? Look at how they spend their time. Do they take a day off? Those are the people who actually know God and believe God and trust God and know his love. It's the ones who are taking a day off. 
The two greatest indicators of what you truly love, what you truly believe, they can be seen in how you spend your time and how you spend your money. What does the way you spend your time say about you? I want you to think about this for a second. What does the way you spend your time say about you and what you're committed to? If you don't like the answer to that question, it's okay. This is an invitation for you to come home. If you don't like the way that you're spending your time or what it actually says about you, come home. Come back to Jesus. Because he says, come to me, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. You can rest in him and you can practice Sabbath. You can climb up that ladder. You can get back on the trapeze. I promise you that not all at once, but slowly and surely, you will begin to reflect his non-anxious presence in a hyper-anxious world. You will. Look, if you see someone, or rather someone sees you, like walking down Main Street with this delicious, warm, and buttery biscuit, and they ask, yo, where did you get that? You're going to tell them, I got it at Cafe Hot. You're not going to keep that a secret. Right? Similarly, if and when people see you taking a whole day off, and when they see you doing your work with seriousness, but also with levity, when they see like work, but also pleasure, when they see you not trying to justify your existence and just constantly being, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, and I'm so busy, like when they see you taking rest, they're going to be like, yo, where did you get that? And you're going to be able to say, I got it at Cafe Hot. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> Right? You will not be imposing your beliefs on somebody. They've asked you, where did you get that? And you just give them the answer. Number seven, invite other people into your rest. Sabbath is a feast, it is not a fast, it is a day of joy, it is a day of consecrated happiness. So invite folks into your feast. Create space at your table for your friends and strangers who are trapped by exhaustion. Let them taste and see that God is good. Y'all, Jesus did most of his healings on the Sabbath. And that should tell you something. What the world needs and what you need to is a day like this. You can't give away what you don't possess. But Jesus has given you this. Enjoy it. And let other people enjoy it too. Jesus wants to get his word inside you. He wants for you to be rested, rooted, and joined to his church so that you can share this kind of fruit with the rest of the world. Pray with me.